Hello and welcome to the Brave Business Podcast, brought to you by accounting, tax, audit and advisory firm Blick Rothenberg. Brave by name and brave by nature, this series is different. Aimed at entrepreneurial businesses, we focus on providing practical guidance, timely insights and professional opinions from industry experts, helping you make informed decisions for your business. I'm Declan Curry, journalist and broadcaster. Today we're going to look at expanding your British business in the United States. What options are available to you? What kind of businesses tend to succeed at it? And what are some of the common challenges that British business faces? With me today to discuss this from Blake Rothenberg is Michael Holland uh, and uh, from the law firm Wilson Sonsini, Brand Dulin. Welcome both of you to the podcast. Michael, let's start with you. The companies that you work with that decide they're going to expand in the United States. Why do they do it? Normally, they are actually pulled into the US rather than beginning by thinking that's where we're going to go. They have a UK business which is operational and successful, and then almost by accident, they evolve to grow a, a US market of clients. Then they have this, this realization that the US is a huge potential market. There's so many potential customers, so many potential investors and talent pool that they think we should explore this. And actually, there's a natural evolution that most businesses go through, which leads them to expanding into the US. So it's opportunity, it's circumstances, it's the, the stars aligning. Absolutely. And particularly the modern way of doing business, being able to communicate by Zoom and Teams means that businesses in the UK are really able to easily connect with US clients and customers really quickly, which makes the expansion grow exponentially. And it feels really familiar. We're familiar with American life because of television and Hollywood. We are divided by a common language. It makes it easier than, say, expanding in France or Germany. Yeah, absolutely. The, the cultural similarities um, make it so much easier for a, a UK business to be successful in the US. There is also this idea that for many founders, particularly in the tech industry, they look at people like Mark Zuckerberg, like Elon Musk. There's almost a, a Hollywood um, kind of movie script to it that the US is, is going to be where they're going to make it, whether the business will be successful. And Michael, what's the expertise that you and your colleagues bring to the table as part of those that thinking, those discussions? So our team are all dual qualified US and UK tax advisors. We are here to help American-connected transatlantic businesses almost overcome the complexities of the U.S. tax system. Um, the goal in all situations is to synchronize U.S. and U.K. And to do that, you have to have an understanding of both sides. So our team is really here to help U.K. founders and U.K. businesses expand into the U.S. or even Americans in the U.K. run a U.K. business. And Brad, um, tell me a bit about your business. Okay, so Wilson Sonsini is a Silicon Valley headquartered law firm, works with tech and life science companies through all aspects of their life cycle in the U.S. So we're vertically narrow in the types of companies and investors we serve, but horizontally very broad. Uh, in London, our practice focuses on working with U.K. tech and life science companies on U.S. expansion ambitions and aims. So like Michael, when companies are looking to the U.S. and wondering, how do I do business there? How do I raise capital from there? That's where we usually engage in conversations with them, um, you know, guide them through the process and then scale and grow with them from there as they you know, conquer the U.S. market. Here we are talking about British business going into the States. Is it fair to think of you as an American doing business in Britain? 
it, it would be a fair assessment that we are an American doing business in Britain to help Britain businesses go back to the U.S. So kind of a full circle. Um, Understood. So you, you, you understand both sides of the... We do. We can translate uh, Queen's English to American English. <laughs> so, yeah. When companies are thinking about it, what should be in their minds? What are the, the, the big issues that you would identify I think much to Michael's point, you know, the, the companies that get pulled to the U.S. tend to be the ones that are most successful, and that is usually driven by product market fit. Um, you know, the, when, when the companies here have their ambitions to go to the U.S., um, to the extent that what whatever their field is here, whether it's a software, you know, a life science product or, or other technology, um, whether or not that's going to gain traction in the U.S. and effectively have them pulled there, um, that is really should be at the uh, you know, companies and founders forefront of their minds as to how we go about doing this in sort of a methodical way and, and, and successful to be in the long run. What are some of the challenges that British companies face? What should they be thinking of if they're considering expansion in the U.S.? Give us a couple of key highlights. So I think very much from the outset, it's making sure whatever you're going to the U.S. with has product market fit. I mean, if you go, if you go too early, you're probably going to fail. Um, the, the, the U.S. market might not be ripe um, for whatever you're bringing over uh, equally. Um, it just might not be. It might be right here, but the regional differences of the U.S., for example, if you're a fintech and you're dealing with U.K. or European banking regulatory law and you go to the U.S., it could be an entirely different system there. Um, and again, what you do here may not work equally there and therefore there's challenges. Um, the other thing that a lot of clients find is that the U.S. is just eye-wateringly expensive to expand into. So if you don't go with enough of a war chest at the outset, uh, everything else might line through, but you're just going to run short on cost in the end. So what might at first glance, at superficial glance, appear familiar, actually isn't. That point about differences in the regions of the U.S. and the different parts of the U.S., I thought that was really uh, important because, of course, we think America, mm -hmm. sort of one great nation, and the difference from time to time, from state to state, is immense. Very much so, which is great because it's such a large market that you don't have to necessarily capture the entirety of it to be successful. You could have a, a regionally specific product that works really well in the Northeast, not adopted at all in the Southwest, but that's a tremendous market in and of itself, right? You know, the Northeast corridor is 100 million people probably. So, you know, again, it's the sort of thing where there's a lot of different opportunity and a lot of way to slice the pie and still be successful at a level beyond what you probably potentially could be here. And it's that sheer scale of the market that gives the opportunity that makes it look so tempting correct, to companies correct. here. Yeah, we talked with so many companies, to Michael's point, that have ambitions to go to the U.S. And I think, you know, a lot of a lot of companies' founders do and view that as sort of the holy grail of where they want to be for the reasons of, you know, seeing the Zuckerbergs of the world and the like. Um, and it's just a question of the measured approach to getting from, okay, if I'm forming as a U.K. company today, what are the steps and process to get me there in the future? And, and how do I do that in a, a methodical way? Michael, bring your insight into this. In terms of those first steps, those first things you th should be thinking about, what are they? So the first thing that we, the first uh, topic we discuss is people think of the U.S. As, as just like the U.K., but actually doing business in the U.S. is more akin to doing business in the EU. 
There is a number of different states which are almost, they have their own sets of laws, they have their own sets of tax rules. And so actually it's thinking about where you want to operate and, and what jurisdiction you want to, to set up in. The second is, how are you going to deliver the, the service or the product that you are you are taking to the US? Do you require boots on the ground in the US? Do you Can you uh, service your clients remotely from a distance? How is the business going to operate? And then after that, we can find the tax structure that works. Let's walk through those step by step then. First of all, deciding where to go, uh, because as uh, Brad says, the regional differences uh, can be quite stark. Uh, even the state that you choose to start in has implications for tax for regulation. Yeah, absolutely. What most people will find is that a Delaware entity is, is the vehicle of choice. Why? Because from a, a, a regulatory and a compliance perspective, Delaware is a pretty straightforward state to set up your business in. It is easy to incorporate in Delaware and then take that business to different states. Really, the business should be thinking about, firstly, where is its customers? Because that's where it's going to have the connection and the presence. The second is, what type of vehicle do I need and that I should take to those locations? But you can have the domicile in Delaware and operate absolutely elsewhere. So your customers don't have to be in Delaware. That's absolutely right. And that's really common in that the majority of businesses will be a Delaware entity that then register with the, the relevant states. Now, one of the, the biggest pitfalls that people we speak to fall over is if you were to Google, how do I start a business in the US? There are thousands of really useful articles, but they are aimed at Americans starting a business in the US. And they will suggest an LLC in Wyoming or Nevada or somewhere like that, which is not the correct US-UK tax answer. It doesn't work out so well for UK people and UK businesses. And so actually, it's relatively easy to set something up, but it's a little bit trickier to set up the right thing. Why is it different for us going there than it is for Americans at home? So there are differences between the way HMRC view um, US entities. So an LLC is, is a particular instance where HMRC and the IRS have a different view on how that entity is taxed. IRS being the American tax authorities, HMRC being the British one. That's right, yes. And that, that difference in opinion can cause um, can cause double taxation. It can cause a, a difference in, in your tax base in the US and the UK. And throughout this entire structuring operation, you're looking to, to synchronize the US and UK as much as possible. Two things, Michael said. They were really great points. One is, um, yeah, invariably, all companies looking to go to the U.S. will form as Delaware, more likely than not, corporations. Um, there can be instances where some other form or jurisdiction makes sense, but by and large, it's Delaware. And just what we like to say is Delaware reduces friction. So anything else is going to require explanation to VCs about why are you in Wyoming or why are you in LLC? Um, and there's just going to be other complications that arise from there. Um, the second point is it is incredibly easy to incorporate in Delaware and, and do the process. And it's very inexpensive. And there's a lot of services out there to, that will help you do it. But it is also incredibly easy to get it wrong. And the problem is if you don't get it right from the outset, if your foundation is cracked and you start building upon that, you might think you're saving costs today by you know an incremental amount of cost by doing it yourself. But when it comes down the, the road and you're ready to start raising your first round and somebody gets under the bonnet, so to speak, and, and looks at what you've done and you have to go back and fix it, now you're talking about a multiple of you know, 10 times to fix the problem. So, okay, just, so how do you avoid getting it wrong in the first place? <laughs> in a non-self-serving way, ask somebody for help who's done it before. <laughs> um, but again, like it's, it's, 
there are plenty of providers out there, platform providers that will do the incorporation process for you. And it's just a matter of checking all of the boxes and just following it through to its end. And what we find is a lot of, you know, European founders that I work with do the first five steps, but don't finish the process. Like they forget to issue themselves shares or pay for the shares or, or adopt the bylaws that are all just very mechanical steps and things that are usually set out in these, these platforms. Maybe it's a slightly higher cost, so they don't know that, well, the, <clears throat> the basic one that's $100 doesn't include everything I need, and I don't want to spend 250 because I didn't know that that matters. So again, it's we're not talking about a, a significant scheme amount of money in the scheme of things, but it does have a big impact down the road. Yeah, there's a naivety to it in that if you haven't done this before, you don't realize the mistakes that you're making or what you're not doing. And actually, again, you can Google, you can look these things up and you think, oh, this is really easy. The first question we ask people is, what is your exit strategy? What do you want to achieve in three, five, 10 years? If it is a, a sale of the business, if it is that you're looking for investment, the corners that you cut now are the things that come back to, to haunt you later on down the line and cost a, a real multiple to, to fix. Interesting. You talk about it important to get it right, largely for tax mm -hmm. and legal reasons. Brad, you say that it has an impact on raising money because anyone who's looking to invest in a business wants a, to be, in your phrase, as frictionless as possible. The nice thing about Delaware is everything is can be fixed. The unfortunate thing is it just comes at a cost. And I've had to have some real hard conversations with founders that get it wrong about, well, these are the these are the things that we need to do to remediate the situation because your investor did their diligence and has flagged all these issues. And now we have to go through this month, two month long process where we have to get stockholder approvals to um, to ratify things that have been done in the past. And, and it's going to add, you know, five figures to your bill, so to speak. Um, and I'd much rather have a, you know, a, a quick conversation with the founder on day one, you know, just in the in furtherance of building relationship to say, yeah, you've done everything right. And just make sure that those first few steps are done correctly. Um, because everything that comes after that is a little, you know, you, you need to do it right and there's a way to do it, but it, you sort of follow the model of what you've done the first time. And Michael, in among all that discussion about American tax, of course, British tax rules still apply as well. Yes, absolutely. And when you have a transatlantic business, it's really important that any decision that's made is made with a full consideration of the US and the UK rules. One of the common situations we see is that people will have a UK business and incorporate a US subsidiary and will naively believe that that US subsidiary is only subject to US tax. However, under UK corporate tax rules, a foreign business which is managed and controlled from the UK is actually treated as a UK corporate tax resident. And so HMRC will look to tax that entity. Um, managed and controlled. So that means that essentially the, the people making the decisions for how that business is run are, are based here in the UK. And so what can happen is that a US entity can be subject to all of the, the requirements that a UK business may be subject to, corporate tax returns, HMRC's company's house filings, all sorts of issues like that. And to piggyback on that comment from the from the structure that we see typically where you have a UK parent and a US subsidiary, say it's a Delaware subsidiary, there's no residency requirement that um, the directors of the US sub be you know, US persons based in the US. So we oftentimes see common directorships, common officers. And sometimes one of the things where companies can fall down because the benefit of the structure, for example, is 
ring fencing liabilities is you need to maintain good separate corporate governance between the two entities. So, you know, you can have one meeting or, or a back-to-back -back meeting where there's the UK parent directors meeting and they take their UK hat off, they put their US hat on, and now they're having a meeting as the directors of the US sub. And sometimes we just see a blurring of the lines there where the corporate formalities aren't aren't properly documented, they're not properly followed, and there's just a risk now to the business that there's a blending of the two and all of the work that you've done to implement the structure falls down. So you've got to be really clear and be seen to have that clear division. Detail-oriented. Uh, for entrepreneurs who really just want to get on and grow their business and get sales and attract new customers, this will all feel a little bit like petty fogging detail. <laughs> But it's really important. It absolutely is. Now, entrepreneurs are there to, to grow the business and to push it. The the tax and the legal is not, not their sole and their number one priority. What we're really here to do is to help them make sure that they don't accidentally trip over something that's going to come back to haunt them further down the line, put the structure in place to then let them go and, and grow their business. Why do any of this at all? Can't you just sit here running your British business quite happily and trade with customers? in the US without setting up over there? Or is that sort of a hindrance? Is that holding you back a bit? No, absolutely. Businesses do that. And there is a very common evolution that we see, which will begin with a UK business, with a UK founder and a UK product doing business with customers in the US. That evolution will, will follow the path of an exploration of there are additional customers, there's a bigger market, we need somebody on the ground there to service those clients, to, to provide customer service, to, to pick up new clients, to be a sales representative. Then that, that contractor or that agent that you might employ becomes more of a permanent employee, at which point the UK business, which was ring-fenced in the UK, is almost um, bleeding into the US market and into the US system. The point at which we tell UK founders that actually your UK business is now exposed to the IRS and state tax and that it has to register with the IRS for a tax number and will have to file a tax return. The look of horror on their face is normally the first step along the conversation of, well, how do we ring fence the US risk? A US subsidiary is normally the answer. And that gives a degree of separation between the, the existing um, substantial UK business, which holds the IP and has all of the accumulated previous year profits away from the, the grasp of the IRS. So what's the tipping point? It's normally the point at which they're going to deploy an individual in the US on a, on a permanent basis who can, who can um, conduct business on behalf of the, the entity. From a tax perspective, we look at it as creating a permanent establishment. So the moment at which- So US employee number one. Yes, that, that's, that's right. So US employee number one that is signing contracts on behalf of the UK business is under the US-UK tax treaty, creating a permanent establishment of that UK business in the US, which almost kicks off, starts the hair running on a US tax filing. Office. And the advantage of that is that that's then how you get the opportunity and the scale in the US in this much bigger, much more lucrative market uh, that far more than you can do just running it from the UK. Absolutely. So what they will find is that the US customers require that require that hands-on service. They require help to, to grow and to sign up and to take on your product. You will need more and more people in the US. And actually, at that point, it will become um, a requirement that, that the exposure in the US is growing and growing and people become uncomfortable with that risk. It's also a place to raise money, isn't it? Very much so, yeah. That it's, it's as well as offering your product or service, you can tap into 
those deep financial pools, particularly the companies, Brad, that you deal with that are in Silicon Valley. Correct. Yeah. No, I mean, there's a there's a multitude of pots of money to be had in the U.S. You know, you've got your prominent U.S. VCs, you've got family offices, you've got corporate venture capital units, um, government funds. Uh, there's, so there's a whole range of uh, capital available to be deployed for private companies uh, in the U.S. But, you know, they very much look beyond as well. And you'll see a lot of U.S. VCs that have over the past, you know, decade or so opened up offices in the U.K. and further afield looking for those opportunities. Um, so there, there is a ripe market for raising capital from, from U.S. sources. And to get it, uh, to come to their attention as a company, you need to be there. Yes, very much so. It, whether or not physically in the sense of opening a subsidiary and having employees, but your product needs to be there. And I think very much what gets on their radar is to the earlier to harken back to something we talked about, when you're starting to get traction in the US, when you're getting pulled there, you start to get on their radar. And very much, you know, they have their finger on the pulse. So it might be the case that you are a, a company that's raised the seed round um, from a, uh, a local a, a UK based VC um, that U.S. VCs follow, right? And there's just sort of, they'll, they'll reach out to you. The, the most incredible thing is once the most traction you get from uh, VCs is right after you closed your first round or, or the, the most recent round. That's when everyone wants to reach out and start talking about what's coming next. Um, and so the U.S. VCs will, will, will have you on their radar. We'll keep in touch and we'll start, you know, the beauty pageant of sorts with you. Take us a couple of steps down the road. So you've, the business is growing nicely here in the U.K., You've got customers in the U.S. You can spot the opportunity. You want to expand in the U.S. So that tipping point has been reached. You've thought about where in the U.S. you should base yourself. You've sought advice on that and on how to set up the tax and other financial considerations. Then what? Day one, you've got your employee in the U.S., what happens next? At that point, the business in the U.S. will will go out and start start looking for revenue, start looking for customers, start um, utilizing the IP held by the U.K. company to to grow sales in the U.S. Um, what we normally see is in that early period, talent from the U.K. will be seconded to the U.S. For many U.K. employees, going to the U.S. on a short term as a common is a real benefit that many people want to want to do. And actually, despite the fact that when you ask founders, do they want to go to the U.S., they'll say no. The majority will end up in the U.S. at some point in the near future because that's where the investment is. That's where the customers are. There's an element of it's slightly sexier to be in New York or Los Angeles to, to grow your business. And founders will eventually move out there. And so having that subsidiary and having those boots on the ground almost naturally evolves and grows as the business takes off. Okay, I want to talk about employment in a moment, but just on this point about people who are usually running the business in the UK going to the US to do some of the work over there, what's their personal tax consideration? What do they need to watch out for? No, absolutely. So many people are almost lulled into a false sense of security because of the similarities between the US and the UK. They assume taxes is, is almost the same thing. Um, but actually, many of the, the founders and employees we see going to the US need to consider things like they need to look at their assets and their investments before they go. The US income tax system works on a residency based system. So if you are a citizen, you're a tax resident, regardless of where you live. If you're a green card holder, you're generally a citizen, a tax a resident. However, if you are a non US person, 
and you spend more than 183 days in the US, 120 over a couple of years, you become subject to US federal tax on your worldwide income and gains. On everything. On everything, not just the US sourced income. So actually, people don't expect that. They think that they're, they'll be non-resident to begin with. And under a non-residency set of rules, you're only taxable on your US income. But the moment you become a US resident, everything becomes becomes taxable. So you might think you're only flying over and back a couple of times a week for meetings and all the rest of it. US tax law, tax law can't possibly touch me. Absolutely. Wrong. Absolutely. And actually, you may spend a couple of days, um, you know, a couple of days a week over there for business, but then you might also go to Florida or California for a holiday. The, the residency test is based on a physical presence. Once you breach that, you become a, a tax resident. And on top of that, the US system works on a kind of a multi-level. There is a federal level of tax. There's also a state level of tax that applies. Um, the trickiest thing can be really tax advantage things in the UK. So a stocks and shares ISA is an absolute home run for a UK person. In the US, it can be terrible. It can be full of PFIX, which are essentially US disadvantaged tax um, investments which can almost wipe out any gains that you make. You've raised the possibility that it's that one trip to Disney <laughs> that tips you over the edge. Could it really be as something as trivial as that can cause that, uh, that amount of change? We have to really hammer home that if a UK person is spending time in the US, they need to track their, their days. They need to be all over it. And actually, this isn't something that you can say, oh, well, I'm just over it. It's, it's more of a substance. This is an actual hardline physical presence test. One of the things most people don't realize is the U.S. Border Control has a website where you can get an I-94, which is essentially your travel history. You put in your passport number and it tells you every U.S. airport you've flown in and out of and the number of days you spent there. So it's not inconceivable that the IRS can see that you've been in the U.S. for more than days than you should. And they will come after you. And they don't distinguish for your for what you're saying between you know, work days mm -hmm. and personal days. A yeah. day is a day. Mm -hmm. and, and similarly, the other issue that works very sort of much in tandem with taxes immigration as well is that you think you're going over on a tourist visa back and forth. You have to be very careful about that and, and, and watch what you say at border control as well when you enter the markets. No, you're absolutely right. Most people think they can go to the U.S. on an ESTA, which actually does, does not work at all if, if you're going over there for work purposes. Well, define work purposes. So if you are going over there to, to conduct business, to, to generate revenue, to... One meeting in a hotel lobby? There's almost a gray area around what, what are you doing there because you're not meeting for social purposes. You are having a business meeting to generate revenue at some point in the future. So a business meeting is a business purpose. One of the drivers behind that tipping point we discussed earlier is, okay, we need to go to the U.S. To go to the U.S. to do business, we need a visa to do so. To get that visa, we need a U.S. subsidiary as the sponsoring entity to get in there. So we're all almost, the business is pulled into the U.S. by customers but it's almost pushed into the US by the set of requirements that are needed to be successful there. Okay, you've got the business in the US, you're looking to hire. Do you need to hire Americans? Do Americans buy from other Americans? They will. I mean, and certainly in the sales function, I think, first and foremost, and, and as Michael said, most of the time, companies first hire in the US as like a senior sales executive. Um, very much culturally driven. Um, there's a very much a sales attitude in the U.S., uh, selling yourself, selling your goods, selling everything pretty much. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that helps. But what we do find is, you know, when you're selling your business, whether it's to potential customers, partners, VCs, you want to put your best pitcher forward. But when it comes time to close the deal, they want to know that they're dealing with somebody who has signing authority and ultimate responsibility for the business. And that becomes one of the reasons why over time, 
founders might be encouraged to move to the U.S. or you know a, a senior level executive to be sort of the face of the business. So while the Americans at the outset getting the foot in the door might be more comfortable dealing with other Americans, ultimately they want to deal with the decision maker. Americans are, are comfortable doing business with an American. One of the really odd anecdotes that we we see is if a UK business has a presence like a UK website and they go to the US and they begin sharing that with their US potential customers, the difference in Queen's English and American English mm -hmm. is something that comes up that the, the website doesn't feel like an American website. Therefore, there's almost a degree of uncertainty that is this a, legit, is this a US business? Mm -hmm. Because it's .co.uk or because of the language? Just almost the, the feel of the website, the language, the, the address, the the business that's listed at the bottom as the name, the address, uh, the, the website address, and also the physical address, just the feeling that this is not a, a US business. Similarly, in certain industries, your customers will be much more comfortable or even insist on doing business with another US entity rather than a, a non-US business. Is there a culture clash? Because we like, we like to think we know America, but we don't really, do we? No, I wouldn't say that there's necessarily a culture clash. And I, I do think that uh, Americans, and, and I, I'm, making broad generalizations here, obviously, but, um, you know, uh, have a fascination and romanticize British culture. So th there's very much a, a harmony with wanting to do business. And, and, and I think in that sense, it work, can work very seamlessly. We're, 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 we're as alike as we are different in some ways. Should we lean into that? Should we go over and pretend that we're on speaking terms with the king or something like that? I, I mean, I, I do think there was a time, at least, where I'm pretty sure everyone thought that everyone in England knew the <laughs> king or queen. Uh, we, we'd probably be on that these days. Um, but I think there were cultural differences that can cut across, too, which, for example, um, the this the selling of style in the U.S. You know, while there has to be um, you know quality behind it, it tends to be a lot more shoot for the moon, right? You know, yes, the, I have a ninety nine percent fail rate, but the one percent is capturing the entirety of the market. Where I think when one of the things when um, you know founders talk to us about how do I pitch to U.S. VCs, it's you know. I, th I think you, you don't want to undervalue yourself and, and self-deprecation or f modesty can be misinterpreted. Um, and if you aren't portraying um, how well you think the business might do, then there's no reason for a VC to, to think otherwise. Right? So be bold. Be bold. That's almost expected. Very much so. I mean, because a lot of these investors, I'm speaking to the investor side, you know, they're looking for the unicorn that's going to return their fund, uh, you know, 1x, 2x return. And there's a, a whole host of companies that you're competing with in the U.S., let alone who else might be further afield in, in Europe. And if you're not standing out from the pack and potentially, you know, even if it's a small chance to be that outlier, there's 20 other companies that are doing something probably pretty similar that are saying they are. So what we might think of as being brash or uh, being um, a, a bit sort of blowhard, yeah. that's expected. To, to an extent. Again, it has to be founded on a basis of reality. You can't yeah. say, like, I, I'm going to yeah, be Google. And you're, you know, you, the market, you know, the, the, the potential market for your product is significantly smaller. But I think sometimes when talking in that way, you end up kneecapping yourself to a certain extent. Um, and, and under it's, it's, it's unintentional. And, and you might have all confidence in your business that that is what you're going to do. But it does feel sort of blowhard to do that, even if there is the chance that that could happen. I think many UK businesses, or just the UK in general, because of things like TV and movies, 
everything is in the US, there's almost an unfounded belief that the UK businesses have an understanding of the US market just based on, on that, that osmosis. Whereas actually, if you were going to expand your business into a country you'd never had a connection with before, you would go and do your research. You would think you would find out the cultural differences and the best way to pitch. Because it's the US and everybody knows the US and we've seen it everywhere before, people almost underestimate it from that perspective and don't do the work that's required. It's a great point. Practice, practice, practice. You cannot practice this enough. Talk with people who have done it before. Um, in these communities, founders tend to be very helpful with each other. Um, find somebody who's gone to the US before, somebody who's succeeded, somebody who's failed. Find advisors who can help you with this stuff. But yeah, if you go in underprepared, you're going to... That's a good point. Find someone who's done it before. And learn from them. Very much so, yeah, yeah. I wonder what experience that might reveal. What are the the mistakes that we should learn from that others have, have done in the past? I think many people or many businesses think, well, I have a successful UK business. We'll just replicate that in the, in the US. And that doesn't always work out quite so well. Um, actually looking at it as a separate market and taking your making your product bespoke to that that market also works um there's also the idea that there's a lot of talent out there but your business has talent you, you need to use the assets that, that you have and how do you make the most of those you there's a you know an expectation that you could just set up a business in the us and hire almost the same people there is talent out there but there's not going to be people with the same experience and background the impression is that it's very easy to hire people in the states it's very easy to fire them as well. How true is that? Very true. Uh, the, the typical form of employment in the U.S. is at-will employment, which means you could be hired today and fired tomorrow. So in that sense, it can be a very fluid market. We see people struggle on the front end uh, hiring the right person. Uh, the good news is that if you can you can sort of remediate that six, that, that um, a mishire fairly quickly through the at-will employment, um, but it also means on the flip side that employees generally are, have, you know, movement of labor, freedom to move around. So it, it does cut both ways. So they can dump you as fast as you can dump them. Yeah, you try and put into contracts for like restrictive covenants, like a non-compete. Um, that varies state by state. California, they're unenforceable, for example. And there is a, a movement right now across the US to kind of undercut those almost entirely. So in that sense, somebody could um, you know, be working for Apple one day and wake up the next day and go work for Meta. But again, Michael, this is another one of those things where we think we know what happens there and actually you need to look under the bonnet in a bit more detail. Yes, absolutely. And almost transatlantic businesses, the reason that, that we, we suggest people talk to us is the idea that we speak both languages from a US and UK tax perspective. If you run a transatlantic business, you have to understand both sides. You cannot take your UK processes and UK employment manual and just replicate that in the US because one, it won't be accepted by US employees, but two, it won't be fit for purpose out there. There's also a different driver in employees in a startup in the UK versus the US, what they'll expect from the business itself. Um, so really it is thinking about the, the, them as two separate entities, as two separate parts of the group. I, I wonder what are the bear traps? What are the the, the the mistakes you could easily make when you're building that first, those first members of your team. Yeah, absolutely. So um, hiring people who, when you start have a startup in the US, employees will look to have a part of the business. They'll look for a return on their investment of time in the business, not just a, an employment and looking for a salary. So actually making sure that you find people who are invested in the business and helping it to grow. There's also the idea of, there's almost a difference between the way certain parts of the US view work as a almost a, a eat as you what you kill type of expression rather than 
it is one group and one one business that is successful. Um, so almost thinking about the best way to structure it, it would make the most sense. What I would add to that as well is uh, misclassification of personnel, whether they're employees or whether they're consultants. And we deal with a lot of clients who go to the U.S. and say, well, I don't have any employees. Everyone's an independent consultant. And it doesn't matter what you label them. It doesn't matter what the contract says. It's really a facts and circumstances test and how much control you have over them and, and, and what their services and duties are. And, and there's a whole multitude of factors that go into it. But if somebody is an employee, it triggers employment tax, it triggers employment law and all the considerations that you're not thinking of. So it does help at the outset to do sort of that thinking and analysis to make sure you're classifying these people and thinking about them in the right way. And if they are employees, then, well, okay, well, what do I need to do and how would I go about hiring them? And again, it's what the rules say, not what you think you've written into the contract. Correct, yeah. And then I think Michael made the point earlier that 50 states, 50 different sets of employment laws. So if you're entering the U.S. and you're a Delaware corporation and you've got employees in California and employees in Illinois and employees in New York, you have to worry about you know, federal law is a general overhang and then state tax, state employment law in, in each of those states. So it, it does become very much like entering the EU in that sense of each state has its own regulatory and legal regime and you need to worry about those things. And the employment law that covers your employees in California is California. Correct. Not Delaware, even though that's where you've incorporated the business. Correct. What about tax then? If you're dealing with customers and earning your sales in California, are you paying tax under Delaware rules or California rules? So the way that income and revenue is apportioned between the states is based on rules each state makes up. So they each have their own apportionment factors. The way that it works is the federal tax return is the whole pie. It has the entire cake there that's subject to federal tax. You then slice that up between the states, depending on firstly, if you have nexus in that state, which is a physical or economic connection, uh, connection to the state. And then secondly, by using that state's apportionment factors. Now, many of them will use a sales-based apportionment factor. So if you 10% of your revenues from California, 10% may be of your profit will be attributable to California. Of all your profit? Of all of it, yeah, the, the, the U.S. profit, the, the U.S. profit of the U.S. entity um, will be apportionable to California. So even if, and this is entirely hypothetical, you've got a lot of sales in California, but you don't make a bean of profit on them, you're still paying state tax on a sales proportion of the overall profit, even though you didn't earn any of that profit in California. That's correct, yes. There can be a portion of, of your overall profit that's distributable to that state. You also have situations where California sources income based on revenue, but another state may source um, revenue based on payroll factors or based on tangible assets and, and property in the state. So there is almost a crossover in, in certain apportionment factors. Is there ever a conflict between the states in terms of one state's law says this, the other state's law says that, and the two are incompatible. There is, they don't always perfectly align with each other. There isn't a huge overlap. There is an agreement between the states, but some of them because of the difference in apportionment factors and even things like how do you determine where a sale is, is apportionable to? Now, some states will have a market-based sourcing. Where is the customer that benefits from that, that sale? Where are they based? Some will have a cost base. Where's the cost incurred to deliver that? For simple businesses, that's all the same state. But for most of these, it may be that the employee is in New York, but the customer's in California, and they may have different approaches. Do you need to have a separate business in each state? Does that even work? It's a separate company in each state so what you do is you have the, the one company that will register with each of the states and say i'm out of state company i have a presence and i have a trade in this state um i have this amount of employees this amount of payroll this amount of revenue and then you will do a federal tax return 
And from that, you will attach a number of state tax returns, which apportion out that profit. You don't necessarily need 50 entities, mm -hmm. one for I mean, th th there could be reasons why you might need more than one US entity, but generally speaking, you would enter with one entity and do business from there in all the states as a foreign corporation. And there's no advantage to setting up 50 different entities. Not particularly, because the compliance associated with filing that would probably outweigh any benefit. What we tend to see, though, is that when, when you start to talk about these things from hypothetical, the US can seem really overwhelming. It can be a hugely complicated system. But once you start to narrow the scope by discussing, well, where is your, your presence of the business? Where are your customers? That actually starts to take stakes out of, the, out of the picture, which makes things slightly easier. The other key consideration is, and we all hope it happens, your US business is hugely profitable and makes an awful lot of money. But in most cases, particularly in the earlier years, the UK parent has all of the IP, has all of the staff, has all of the assets that generate the revenue. The US may be a sales office with employees. It may be collecting US revenue, but it, it owes the UK's parent company for the use of all of those assets. And so there may be a huge amount of revenue, but a tiny amount of profit in the US. The only times I've seen companies really form multiple entities for those purposes are usually where there's you know fixed or hard assets that are potentially liability generating. So you're buying private aircraft, you're a restaurant franchisee or operator, and you've got different locations, you might set up a limited liability company for each of those just to ring fence liability. But to Michael's point, there's a quite an administrative list that's going to come with that from, you know, sort of corporate maintenance, tax filings, and, and, and the rest. So there is a, you know, cost benefit way there that needs to be done. Are there any particular industries or sectors that are more hardwired for success in the States? I think there are certain industries that, that lend themselves more easily to be successful in the US, particularly tech software type businesses that don't require much in terms of tangible assets, because it's very easy to take your software and launch in the US pretty quickly. If you require an awful lot of people and an awful lot of tangible physical widgets, that can be much tougher. Agreed. Yeah, I think software, things that sit sort of behind the curtain, those can be adapted and implemented a lot easier than some of the forward-facing things where, oh, I've got a, uh, I've got a therapeutic treatment, but I've got to go through FDA regulatory purpose, you know, approvals and things like that. So yeah, I think it's not to say that we see a multitude of different businesses that are successful, that there's no rhyme or reason necessarily other than there's uptake in this US for them. But I think the potential for something like a tech business is probably a lot easier. And I think the quickest evolution in the US that we see tend to be from service-based businesses. So a lot of UK-based advertising businesses, or particularly in the media industry, will suddenly find a connection in the US that almost explodes. And almost, they will very quickly spend time in the US, connect with more customers, and that also drags talent and drags a business into the US very quickly. And do birds of a feather flock together? You know, if you are a tech business, should you really think about going to Silicon Valley because you've got all the benefits of being around other tech companies. You've got that uh, talent pool that's in place. If you're media and advertising, should you be thinking about New York or should you think beyond the obvious? It really depends on what your ambitions are as a founder, I would say. If, you, if your uh, dream is to conquer the world, then that probably is the last, you know, one of the last steps in the process. Um, but, you know, we work with plenty of founders, or I know plenty of people who um, don't have those ambitions, because there's a lot of cost and sacrifice that comes along with those things. And you can be remarkably successful, you know, in just staying in the UK market or looking at Europe. And there's a whole, like, I work with a lot of companies in Africa, for example, a huge huge developing market, a lot of opportunities. 
no exposure to the U.S., yet the potential there is, you know, probably just the same in a lot of ways. So it, it, there are different ways to get to the same result. I think the U.S. is probably the most mature and assured path of success because it's got rule of law, it's got the established players, there's, there's a pattern and path to be followed that some of these other opportunities might be a little, you know, less secure, but the, the scale could be there as well, so... And it can be tough. You know, there are big successful companies in Britain that have gone to the US and have flopped. And then there are other lots of other companies from Britain that have gone to the US and being a huge success. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it all comes down to what we talked about right at the beginning of, of what you're going into the US for, what what's taking you into the US market. Are you naturally growing into the US market as a business? Or are you almost trying to push your business into the US because that's where you'd like to be. It all comes down to timing, it all comes down to market fit. But yeah, absolutely, hugely successful UK businesses are not a perfect fit out of the box for the US. That's not unique just to the UK too. Mm -hmm. Plenty of businesses go from everywhere and fail and succeed. So it's, it's, it's a great opportunity, um, but you know, it, it's not without its struggles and, and, and risks as well. Brad and Michael, really, really interesting and fascinating stuff. Thank you both very much uh, for being with us today. If you'd like to listen to other Brave Business uh, episodes, then you can find them on your favourite podcast service. Or for further insights to help entrepreneurial businesses, you can visit Blick Rothenberg's Entrepreneurs Hub, www.blickrothenberg.com slash entrepreneurs. I'm Declan Curry. This has been the Blick Rothenberg Brave Business Podcast. Thank you so much for being part of our conversation. <laughs>